Hello, and welcome to Living It Radio. I'm Kelly DiNardo, here with Amy Pierce Hayden. We are the authors of Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat. Through our book and this podcast, we aim to make the principles of yoga alive, active, accessible, and personal. On this podcast, we go deeper into the topics we address in the book by talking to compelling people who can help us live an inspired, connected, joyful life. Today we are joined by Michelle Cassandra Johnson, yoga teacher, author, social justice warrior, and dismantling racism trainer. In this interview, we talk to Michelle about the connection between yoga and social justice, cultural appropriation, how racism steals not just from the oppressed but the collective good, and what we can do to affect change. Hi Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, inviting me to the show. Absolutely. So let's dive right in. We were hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you started practicing yoga. Yeah, so I started practicing yoga in college. Um, I was in a gym class, and one of the modules in that class was yoga. Um, and I don't remember much from that about that, that class. It didn't feel spiritual in nature at all. It felt like a fitness class. This was a gym, gym credit. So um, after that, I, I went to grad school for social work in North Carolina, um, and I started practicing yoga in a gym um, with a pretty well-known teacher in um, the town I lived in, which was Carborough, North Carolina at the time. And um, I started practicing somewhat consistently with this teacher. The practice definitely felt spiritual in nature. Um, and I was one of a few people of color in this gym class consistently. And I, I was curious about that and why. And so. After um, experiencing that class, a studio opened across the street from my house, and I started to go there and practice every day with different teachers um, and teachers from different lineages. And it really piqued my interest in what it would be like to just deepen my practice of yoga. I was a clinical social worker at the time, and so I I went into yoga teacher training with the intention of um, starting a uh, integrating yoga into my private practice because I was working a lot with people to experience trauma and I wanted to integrate some meditation, um, breath work, uh, a little bit of movement, visualization into my therapy practice. So that's why I ended up going to yoga teacher training. And then, of course, it opened up to a, I did a 200 hour and then I did my 300 hour to become a 500 hour certified teacher. And um, in my yoga teacher trainings, both my 200-hour and 300-hour, I had a similar experience um, to the one that I had in that gym class of being one of a few people of color in the class. And also, I was an activist before I was um, uh, before I found yoga. I think I've, I've always been a yogi, but I was an activist, and so I had that lens in my trainings. And I would hear about the yamas and niyamas um, and the eight-limb path. And my mind would go to, like, how do we um, apply these principles to the, the times we're living in right now? And how do we um, connect these with um, the injustice that's happening in the world? And how can they be, like, the remedy for the injustice that is happening in the world? So that was, like, my lens in my training. And that led me to lead, um, create my own 200-hour training program program. 
and I'm just about to graduate my sixth class from that 200-hour program, which is called... Congratulations. Thank you. And it's called Skill in Action, like the book. Um, and it is a 200-hour training where students learn how to teach asana and breathwork and meditation and visualization, and they also learn about power and how it's been constructed in culture and um, how folks are being marginalized and how people experience privilege at the expense of other people based on identities they embody. So it's a little bit. Was there an exact moment for you that you can say as a yoga practitioner or maybe during one of your trainings, your 200 or 300 hour, where you thought, oh, this is going to be about social justice? Like, was there a defining moment where you knew very clearly you were going to change directions or was it more of a uh, an expansive shift? I, I mean, I'd say a little bit of both. It certainly has been an expansive shift. And I, I did have moments in training where, and in particular, it was about the um, yamas um, that I remember learning about them and feeling like we're talking about um, nonviolence, but let's talk about the violence in the world and why it's in place. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about greedlessness. Let's talk about capitalism and how power has been constructed. So, I mean, those moments of like very clearly connecting um, the philosophy of yoga with like my practice as an activist. I had several of those moments, which I think propelled me into this space of like, I'm just going to create my own training because I don't I don't see much of this around me. We're not really talking about how to apply these principles to our daily lives. Um, and we're not really talking about how to apply them to shift the collective experience that people are having. So um, several defining moments in training. Well, let's talk about that because I loved in the book where you were talking about reading the Bhagavad Gita and hearing that yoga is skill in action. So, And it's clearly meant so much to you. You've named your training and your book that. So talk to us a little bit about what exactly that means to you. Yeah, I mean, that certainly was a defining moment. And that was, I, I think I had completed my 500 hour, but I'm not sure. Um, I'd, I had finished my 200 hour. And um, my friend Claudia, as I wrote about in the book, shared the Bhagavad Gita, which I didn't experience in either 200 hour or 300 hour training. So um, it was new to me. And it was the first time a teacher read from a text. And it suggested that um, I heard it as like yoga is about something much bigger than the physical experience I'm having in this posture right now. Um, I'm being invited into taking this practice off of the mat and it's calling me into something bigger. That's how I experienced the verse from the Gita, yoga skill in action. And the other verse that I always talk about with the Gita is no effort is wasted, no gain ever reversed. Even a little of this practice will shelter you from sorrow. Um, because as an activist, I um, become exhausted from both overwhelm and from the work and the like external work that I'm doing. And so when I heard that, and it's also hard to um, be engaging in activist work, also being a woman of color, experiencing oppression because of how the culture has been constructed um, and trying to like fight a system, it's hard to do that without being attached to the outcome. And um, to also probably see that our tiny little actions are cumulative, you know, right. positively. And we're not at the end yet. And that's going to take some time. That's right. And so when I heard that verse about no effort is wasted, I was like, oh, remember, like, you just have to do the work, Michelle. 
you can't really focus on the outcome, even mm -hmm. if you have a vision and you have a goal, like don't be attached to that. Instead, know that the effort you're putting in is going to make some change and some shift and you may never see it or hear about it, but it's happening and trust that it's happening. Which is one of the central themes in the Gita. Yeah, yeah, like do your work, like this is your duty, this is your Dharma. So um, I think skill in action was, was like the um, sort of momentum. It, was, it felt very energetic when she said it to me. And I don't know that Claudia knew what she, I mean, she was just reading from the Gita at that moment in time. Right. And it was really touching me in this deep way. And that, of course, as you said, changed my, my life because I named my book Skill in Action and named the teacher training Skill in Action because I really wanted to invite people into understanding that yoga is about something much bigger than the physical practice. And it's about something much bigger than our own individual experience on the mat or on the cushion. Yeah. You, you talk about how we don't talk about this in yoga as using yoga as an action and a skill to guide us in the world. So how does it guide you? And then how do you see it guiding the rest of us or all of us, not the rest of us, <laughs> in mm -hmm. the greater world? Um, it, I feel like the biggest way that it guides me that I'm aware of is um, I feel like every moment is an opportunity for me to practice yoga. So it's not something that I go do, even though sometimes I'm like, I'm going to practice yoga. That's like false because I feel like yoga is the way that I want to live. And I want to live by these principles and the philosophy that has been shared with me. And there's still so much more for me to learn about the practice. But I want to spend my life learning about the practice and living the practice. And so it guides my interactions with people. And it guides my relationship with myself. It guides my work and how I show up in spaces and talk about skill in action and talk about justice in spiritual spaces. And then I feel like it can help guide all of us um, because we're living in this time, which I'm not sure it's different than before, although it feels different to me. Um, and it feels different to my mother, who's 76, um, than, than it ever has before. Like these times feel scary and they feel overwhelming. And I have more access to social media, right? So I can see what's happening um, and in real time, right? What's happening and, and what atrocities are happening in this culture every, it feels like every day something is happening to people and so I feel like um, what we're being called into as a collective is to step up and to figure out what our role is um, and how we want to respond to the injustices in the world, to the imbalance of power, to the abuse of power. And I also feel like the practice can guide us into truth and it asks us to like speak truth, to see truth, to remove illusion. That's part of the reason we show up to the practice over and over, or that's the invitation for people. And so I feel like this practice is, um, it's such a gift and it's also such a, um, I feel like once, once I stepped into the practice, I, I couldn't turn back. And I think that is available for people if they're open to it. And it means that we can't turn away from what's real and what's happening and our responsibility to one another. Um, and to the whole, the collective. Yeah. It, it's funny. I get a question from students pretty regularly about, you know, in terms of ahimsa and nonviolence, and we're supposed to not be attached to our, the, the results of our actions. So like, does yoga tell us that we're just supposed to sit by and 
watch what's happening to the world and like not act. And my response is always no. Yoga is telling you how you can act, but it's not saying you don't act. And so I'd be really curious to hear from you more about how yoga informs how you act in the world and and face social injustice, like how it guides you. Yeah, I, I, um, one way that it, it guides me is, um, I'm always aware of, I, I think I am always aware of my connection to other beings mm. and my actions, um, and how they might affect other people. And some of that's from my lived experience in a black body and as a woman, mm-hmm. and some of that's just how I am. And some of that's my like conditioning from my mother and my grandmother and my family, like looking outside of ourselves to the, to the bigger, the collective, the people around us how what we're saying and doing affects other people. And so I'm clear that like, I'm not, um, I I might be taking an action individually on my own, but it has a a collective impact. And I'm aware of that and try to be aware of that all of the time. Like I'm not operating in isolation. And that's actually one of the things that culture, dominant culture says is we are individuals. We are um, isolated. We are not responsible for other people that's part of the toxic conditioning. And I feel like I really practice the opposite of that. Like I am part of a whole, I'm not having the same experience as everyone else, but I know that, um, my actions affect all the beings on this planet in some way. And I, I hope that that awareness shifts the way that I act. Like that's the biggest way I think the practice guides me, um, and the principles in the practice, uh, guide me. And then I also, in my facilitation and training work with, um, racial, equity work or dismantling racism work and skill in action, which is a combination of, of equity work and, um, yoga. I I have people show up to those trainings with very different experiences, sometimes with different belief systems, different identities. Um, and we're in the room together, right? Having the shared experience, but also having individual experiences that are different based on our identities and social location. And um, I'm a black woman leading the trainings. Um, sometimes I co-lead them with a white trainer, but usually I'm uh, by myself when I'm leading skill and action trainings. And one thing I really try to practice is remembering the whole in the moments when, uh, and that I'm part of the whole and the collective. Um, I try to remember that in the moments when people are challenging me or challenging my truth or my experience, even if it's like not their, tr- like they don't actually know my experience. And I try to call people in. Uh, and I also can, I've worked really hard to separate out conditioning from humanity. So like I've taken in a bunch of toxic conditioning and I still want to be in my humanity and understand the shared humanity. And I try to bring that into my trainings. And that's a way of holding space and holding people. Like I'm not going to um, divide and conquer more because culture already does that. So I really try to like uh, help people see the connection and see that I'm going to stay with them. I'm going to be in relationship with them, even as they are saying something that feels so counter to what I know to be true in my experience. And I feel like practicing that is definitely, I mean, that's from spiritual practice. That feels like a spiritual practice to me. And it's also people get to witness that. And I think it can help shift their own spiritual practice as well. 
I think this is one of the most challenging things because you even mentioned in the book that yoga means to yoke, as we know, and it's about bringing together things that seem to be in opposition. I think you name, you know, like the body and the mind or the heart and the spirit. But of course, it has to be about bringing together big things that are in opposition or seem to be in opposition, like white versus black or poor versus rich and all and all of these inequalities. Uh, but at the same time, you make uh, a distinction that it's important to recognize our differences. And so there's these two sides of the coin that I think are hard to reconcile because we're trying to honor each other's sameness, but you make a very good point that we have to acknowledge differences. And how do we do that without further dividing? It's a, it's a good, that's a very good question. Um, my desire um, for us to recognize difference is based on my understanding of power and identity and privilege and oppression and the relationship between privilege and oppression and power. And so um, I want to hold the truth, um, the universal truth that there is oneness, um, that we are having a shared experience. We are through humanity, right? Um, and being in these bodies as we're trying to navigate this, this culture and our experiences in the culture. And we're also um, different based on how culture is constructed identity. The, the things that you named, so culture has made meaning of blackness, it's made meaning of whiteness, it's made meaning of being Latinx, it's made meaning of being Asian, it's made meaning of being straight or gay or trans or non-binary. Um, it's made meaning of being female identified or male identified or poor or rich, right? And so I feel like we can't, the sameness can't erase what culture's done. Like, so I will hold that there's sameness and also look at where I am and the experience that I'm having um, based on privileged identities or oppressed identities and the experience that other people are having based on what they share about their identities and how they move through the, the culture because culture's constructed these categories. And so we, I, I, mean, I think it's skillful for us to be able to do both. Let's look at the ways that we're the same. Let's understand we have shared humanity, we're connected. And let's also look at the way in which ways in which we are navigating culture in like differently based on identities and what culture says about our identities and who we are, which may be very different than our own narratives about our identities. Right. We're all seeing it through a different filter. Right. And ultimately suffering is suffering. The way I'm suffering may not be the way you're suffering, but to understand that we're we're all suffering, you know, we could look at what yoga says about um, the kleshas and that the root of all suffering is misperception of vidya and then identity ego right is the truth universally yeah and i think that's you know i mentioned conditioning earlier i think you know conditioning causes a lot of suffering and so absolutely we are cultural conditioning does we are experiencing suffering and it's it's skillful for you and for me, I don't, I don't know you, like, I don't know your identities, right? It's skillful for us to understand. We probably don't share all the same identities, right? And so we're moving through this culture in different ways based on what culture does. Very different than based on what I do and how I can see you or hear you and align with you around certain things that you're sharing and saying, and even things that feel different than how I, things I believe, you know? And so I feel like it's important for us to be able to, to hold multiple truths. Well, you're, and you're asking us to take responsibility, right? Those of us who have privilege and a position of so-called power, your, your aim is to say, come on, it doesn't matter where we're coming from. We have a responsibility to be awake. Yes, yes. 
and you know to be awake and to take action and to take like, action i can be conscious right and and aware and not do anything about right it. and we just can't afford to do that yeah i thought it was really interesting in the book that that you make a really strong point about how we operate in a culture that assumes social justice and race equity and civil rights are for the benefit of the people being oppressed but that actually it affects all of us so and essentially i took that from that that and this is why we wanted to have you on for this episode is that that essentially is stealing from the collective good that mm-hmm. that whole idea and so i was hoping that you could elaborate on that and how it affects all people yeah um so you're you're naming one of the assumptions that's um it's in the part of the beginning of the book and the assumptions um are from a collective of trainers called Dismantling Racism Works. I like to, to say where things come from. Mm-hmm. And I was part of that collective. And we created assumptions because we um, had a belief system and philosophy. And we felt like it was important to share it with people, not that they had to agree, but just to let people know, like transparency is a practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the particular assumption you're talking about is um, what you named about um, justice, creating justice and creating equity and racial equity, there's a, there's a belief in the culture that that is just for the benefit of the people who are being harmed by that injustice um, or inequity in the culture and in power and the power imbalance. And that, I think that does two things. One is it, um, it can set up a savior um, dynamic, Mm -hmm. where if it's just for the benefit of me, like let's say racial justice is just to benefit me, um, put whiteness with that, and there can be a whole like, I'm going to save you, I'm going to help you, um, I'm going to work on my racism for you, as if there's like no benefit to white people, yeah, like to do anti-racist work. There's like a benefit (laughs) there, like do the work, you know? So that happens, and I also feel like um, racism and equity and justice harms everyone. And so the moment we feel like this work is just to benefit this group of people that's being harmed, we don't look at the um, ways in which all of us are experiencing harm because of culture. And we're experiencing it in different ways, but everyone's being harmed. And I feel like we need to acknowledge that. Um, and I feel like that, uh, that speaks to spiritual practice too and, and oneness. Like, not sameness, but oneness. All of us are experiencing suffering. Each one of us is experiencing harm because of the culture, just in different ways. And so, um, and we're also perpetuating harm based on our identities. And so I think this assumption invites people into thinking about how they're doing that as well. Um, that it's not just to benefit this group of people. Like we're not just going to create laws that then shifts the experience for people of color because laws actually don't in practice, they really don't do that. Like we have laws in place and they're not operating in the way in which they, they need to for people to be free and liberated. So this assumption is just an invitation into like, let's look at how we're being harmed. Let's look at our social location, um, where we're perpetuating harm and how we benefit from doing this work as well. And what a great ignorance, right? I mean, I really do think that there are I'll say I'm include, you know, I'm in this pool, plenty of white people who have no idea that they're being affected by what's going on because it's not touching them close enough. It's it's just as blind. Yeah. Yes, and I think it actually it's not I think it's so nuanced because it is like racism is not touching people in the same white people in the same way that it's affecting me and harming me and I mean killing me, right? That's what's happening. Um, 
on a soul level, like that is what's happening because of, of the culture and how it's been constructed. Um, but I, I also feel like if we think about spiritual practice, it's, it's harming everyone. And I think um, divide and conquer, as I write about in the book, is like the greatest. It's the strategy that supremacy uses over and over. And so the moment um, white people feel like I'm not as close to this, right? Even though I actually think white people are, they're not being affected in the same way, but I think on a like spiritual level in the spirit, we're being harmed, like we're being severed, we're being um, fragmented um, in similar ways. And so I just think it's nuanced. It's like the truth that I'm having a different experience than white people. And I also feel like white people are, are dying because of racism too. Absolutely. Just not at the same rate, right? As people of color are. It's a lot to think about. Yeah. You know? And kind of turn over. And so once we think about it, what are some of the specific actions then that we that we can take? How do we how do we continue to educate ourselves and to to do better? I think, you know, consciousness raising education is really important. And um, I've been leading trainings for over two decades, um, anti-racism trainings and um I feel like I'm going to be learning about oppression and privilege and power for the rest of my life. And so the moment I feel like I've gone to the training that's taught me everything, it's, that's dangerous. So mm-hmm. there's like the consciousness raising. We need to continue to be in this process of education, which I think yoga actually says the same thing. Like this is a lifelong practice. Show up again and again and again. Each moment is different. Each breath is different. Notice what is new in this moment. I think that's the same thing when we think about consciousness raising around um, power and oppression and privilege and what's happening in the culture and how to wake up um, to what's happening. So there's that piece. The, there's the practice piece. Like we, we have to show up even when it's messy. We have to show up even though we're going to make mistakes. We have to show up even if relationships are going to be challenged or per- potentially end. Um, because of the consciousness raising that's happening and also our social location, which I'll define in a moment, our identities. So there's the education, there's the practice, there's locating ourselves. And when I say social location, I I mean um, looking at our identities, the identities we embody. Um, Some examples are I'm a black um, female identified 44-year-old master's degree, so um, educated, middle class, able-bodied, straight, like those aren't all of my identities, but those are some of the identities that, that I embody. And I need to understand um, those identities and how they're playing out in different spaces. So context matters. So mm-hmm. if I'm in a room of all black women, um, there's some, I have some belief that there's some shared experience and understanding there and I don't have to explain things as much. Versus if I'm in a room with all white men, I'm going to have a different experience. And so my, my identities are going to play out in a different way. Um, and so understanding our identities, our location and the context, that's part of the practice as well. Um, and also that we're, I mean, we're evolving. I think it's also important to understand identities that are visible and identities that are not visible and the power in that and how that can play out in, in groups as well. And then I feel like it's figuring out based on my social location what is my responsibility and in, 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 at, at any given time or in any given moment, what is my responsibility? Because again, context matters. 
how can I take action? So what that means for me is if I'm in a room with, um, let's say, half folks of color and half white folks from what I'm reading in the room, and some um, harm happens based on race, um, I'm going to be paying attention to everyone. I'm going to be paying attention to the folks of color, though, more if it's, ha- if it's racialized in that way. I'm going to think about strategically how I respond and what my role is in responsibility. I'm not going to be silent about it. Um, I'm going to usually acknowledge harm and I say how I feel about it and I invite the group into responding to that and um, figuring out how we want to hold that or how we want to process it. So that's one example. But sometimes my role is like showing up to the rally and sometimes my role is calling um, the legislator and saying like, this is problematic, this policy you're about to pass. So we have different roles, but we can't like, and we can't sit and, and wait for someone else to do the work for us. Um, because that's really not going to happen. Like we have to do the work. So those are some of the ways that I think about action. There's consciousness, there's practice, there's locating ourselves. Then there's figuring out what our role is um, based on the context. Now we're going to take a quick break from our chat with Michelle to give a shout out to our show partners. Shambhala Publications is the proud publisher of our book, Living the Sutras, a guide to yoga wisdom beyond the mat, as well as Restore and Rebalance, Yoga for Deep Relaxation by Judith Hansen Lasseter. As a listener of our show, you get 30% off your purchase with code ASTEA30 at Shambhala.com. That's A-S-T-E-Y-A 30, all caps on ASTEA. Support for Living It is also brought to you by Alchemy Forever, a clean and clinical skincare line developed by Switzerland's top dermatologist. The products are anti-aging, paraben-free, gluten-free, cruelty-free, and ideal for all skin types. Use the code SUTRA20, all caps again, to get 20% off your Alchemy Forever products on alchemy-forever.com. And now, back to our conversation with Michelle. And it can be such a sticky and slippery slope because you, you talk about this a little bit in the book. You can, we have to. You've had to make adjustments in certain situations. You use that word, but we don't want the adjustment to be a compromise or um, a pulling back because that's not going to help the situation move forward or expose what's going on. But at the same time, like you said, you have to read the room or you have to read the situation to embody the best part of what role you 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 have to play in order to move something forward in the most non-harming positive way, and that's tricky. It's tricky. That's why I said it's messy. And we have to keep showing up anyway. It's like, I'm, I'm going to cause harm even as I'm trying to shift the culture and invite the collective into something different. I, I, because of the identities I embody, it's complex, right? And so I'm just aware and I'm going to take the risk anyway. When it, but I'm going to be strategic because I've learned how to do that because the culture's taught me how to do that from this experience of being in a black body, right? So I've had to learn how to be strategic. Um, but just, you know, something that stops people time and time again is they're afraid they're going to make a mistake and they feel like it needs to be perfect. And my mom taught me like, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you have to do it. I mean, that's the lesson. I'm so grateful that she like taught me not to be a perfectionist because it's allowed me to take risks, um, again, coupled with strategy and to not be, even when I'm afraid actually to take the risk. And sometimes I'm not afraid to take the risk. And so... Um, I feel like people need to work through, and I actually think yoga can help us do this, work through the fear that's present um, that can cause us to not take action. Like the invitation is to take action even when we're afraid. Hmm. 
So what do you see as the role of the yoga teacher or the yoga studio in this, in this construct? I um, feel like I've been to so many spaces, um, in so many spaces, yoga studios, spiritual spaces, um, social justice spaces with um, some sort of spiritual practice or ritual. Um, but in particular in yoga spaces, I have not um, heard many teachers invite us into thinking about what's going on outside of the room or the building. Mm. Um, I have not um, experienced many teachers share about how they are uh, living their practice um, when they their 75-minute class is over. Um, and I haven't experienced many teachers teaching beyond asana. Um, and of course, I think more, there are more people now in the spiritual spaces talking about justice. I mean, I do think it's shifting now. But if I look at like how long I've been practicing yoga, I feel like this is new. Um, yeah. This conversation in yoga communities is new to talk about justice, to talk about um, a studio taking a stand, right? Because we're studios are supposed to be neutral, right? And and that's not actually the culture's not neutral, and studios exist, and teachers exist in the culture. So there's no way we can be neutral in the midst of, of the harm that's happening to us and around us and the harm that we're perpetuating. And so I feel like um, yoga teachers need to educate themselves about the injustice that's happening, need to theme classes around it. And I don't mean overwhelming people's systems when they come in for a class. I do mean offering a Dharma talk about what's happening in their community and what they're doing about it right, how they're responding and giving their students ideas about how they can respond to what's happening in their communities. And I also mean raising consciousness in the classroom through the philosophy of yoga. So if we're going to talk about nonviolence, how do we talk about living that off of the mat and not just like how to practice non-harming as we move through asana and breath work? And if we're going to talk about, um, I mentioned greedlessness earlier, um, then let's talk about all the ways in which we're attached to material things and how that causes harm to the collective, right? And if we're going to talk about non-stealing, which is, feels tied to that as well, greedlessness, let's talk about all the ways in which cultural appropriation happens in yoga spaces and how we're reckoning with that. Um, and I talk about that in my classes too because this is not my direct lineage. And so those are just some I feel like all of the information that we need is in the philosophy and in the practice. We just have to learn how to translate that into um, and connect it with what's happening in the culture and then speak about it authentically from our own identities and social location. I feel like we've circled around cultural appropriation a little bit. So let's let's just tackle it here. <laughs> um, I loved what you said in your book about how it's hard to live in our westernized culture without participating in cultural appropriation in some way. So. I'd love to hear, I'd love to have you expand on that a little bit. And then I'd love to hear from you about some of the way that, some of the different ways that that happens in yoga specifically. Yeah. Um, I learned about cultural appropriation in my um, first dismantling racism training that I attended over 20 years ago. Um, so I didn't hear it in a, in the spiritual space or the context of yoga. It was really, we were talking about racism and, and whiteness and power. And um, the trainer defined cultural appropriation as taking something from another culture without any appreciation for that culture or any connection to that culture, often um, 
consuming it or repackaging it and selling it. Um, that's how I was introduced to cultural appropriation. And then um, I started to think about it more when I started to practice yoga consistently. Um, and mainly, when I say that, mainly asana and, and breath work, and I was introduced to the philosophy um, as I'm thinking back about this, I started to think about what it meant for, because I had mostly white teachers, um, yoga teachers, so I was, I was starting to think about, I was starting to be curious, actually, about what does it mean that this white male teacher is reading from this text and mm -hmm. sharing this information with me? I just had questions. I actually wasn't in a place of judgment. I was just like, oh, this feels, this feels connected to cultural appropriation for me. But this teacher is also being reverent and trying to like be responsible and telling me where this is from. And so I just sat in this space of, I mean, deep questioning around, is it, is it appropriate like, for this person to be teaching? And then when I became a teacher, is it appropriate for me to teach something from a lineage that's not mine? Mm -hmm. And I sit with that question all of the time. And how do I honor the practice? Um, and do I use Sanskrit or do I talk about the philosophy, right? And do I talk about it and then apply it like I did in the book to what I think and to justice? Like, it, what does it mean that I'm doing that? So just know I'm like in question, I'm like in deep inquiry about that all of the time. And I'm not, I don't have an answer about what is right. And, and often I think there, there's just so many um, different ways of being um, and doing. And so I try not to get in the binary of, of right or, or wrong in this in this context. Um, mm. I mean, there's some things I feel like are completely, <laughs> we should not be doing and some things I feel like, like are morally right, right? And just, but it, when I think about this, it feels very complicated because of the context I'm in. I'm in the US. Um, I'm in spaces where mostly um, classes are mostly taught by white teachers and, and mostly white females. Um, I teach a class for women of color, but I don't, have very many, I've not had experiences with very many teachers of color, um, Desi teachers, um, teachers who are really tied to this lineage, directly tied to the lineage. Mm -hmm. The good and, news is the sutra says that it's beyond any race, class, or time and space. So <laughs> yes. right there is giving us permission to say this is not for anyone specifically, but for everybody. Yeah. I mean, that is true. That feels like a truth. Um, because I feel like each, everyone needs this practice. Um, and I feel like there's a way the industry of yoga needs to be more responsible and talking about cultural appropriation and thinking about how we are using the practice and then profiting from the practice. That's where it gets tricky for me. And even when I wrote the book and, and even the cover of the book, I'm like, I, I don't know if this is, um, okay. Um, and I sat with it for a while. And I also um, understand I have something to say that has not been centered in the um, yoga spaces, at least in this country, right? Talking about justice has not been centered very much. And so I knew I had a, a perspective that was different um, than what had been presented to me about yoga. And that's ultimately, that's the reason that I birthed this book and put it out into the world. Um, but it doesn't mean I feel okay about not knowing everything I need to know about this practice. And it doesn't mean I feel okay about taking things from the practice um, without seeing the whole practice or understanding the whole practice. And that's where you're talking about intent um, uh, versus impact, which I think is a really 
important centralized theme that maybe we're missing a little bit in any of our spiritual practices. Yes. You know, even I think about if I want to make, I want to give a suggestion to one of my best friends because I think, I think this might help. In my experience, this helped. And it could be taken the wrong way. Something as simple as somebody who I already have a good relationship with, let alone getting up in front of a class of 30 people who maybe I don't have a a really yet connected relationship with saying something, and I don't know how it's going to bounce off. And our work is to pay attention to the impact more than our good intentions. That's what you're naming. In a culture that says, if you have good intentions, don't think about the impact. Um, You know, if you're positive thought, don't think about the impact. And really, we need to be listening to the people who are most deeply impacted and harmed by the culture. We need to listen to their truth when they express it. Um, So, yeah, that's all I wanted to name about intent and impact. So what are some of the things that we can do to, quote unquote, fix this issue of cultural appropriation in yoga? I mean, is, is there anything we can do? Well, you know, one, I don't know that I am the person to answer that. Um, and the reason I, I say that is because I'm not Desi and Mm -hmm. this is not directly from my, um, lived lineage. Right. And so I just, I want to name that part of it. And I have some ideas. I just want to name like I don't know if I'm the person who can speak to that related to yoga. I could Mm -hmm. speak to it related to um, the way I learned about cultural appropriation, which again was in a dismantling racism space, right? I have a lot more information about that um, and experience, lived experience of that. I I think um, it's important for teachers or practitioners to each time they show up to teach or show up to be in a, um, to the practice that they understand that um, cultural appropriation is probably happening in this space. So like it's a given that it's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And how do we want to work with that if it's happening? So how do we acknowledge um, that harm may be happening in response to appropriating and taking something? And and what does it look like to honor the practice? Um, And people have different ways of understanding what it looks like to honor something. What does it look like to care for the practice or... um, be a steward for this practice, right? And be responsible with the awareness. If it's not from our um, direct lineage, um, we need to hold that. We need to understand that as we're offering the practice and honoring it. So I think that's what I ask, invite teachers to do. And then I also feel like being responsible with um, symbols, with um, things that are very sacred to the practice that we may not understand and taking them and um, using them in ways that um, would cause more harm um, to people. For example, I got feedback from um, a Desi woman about the cover of my book. It's um, the own symbol and there are words written in it. And the cover, that was the, that's the logo of my teacher training. And there are words in it like justice, um, like equality, freedom, um, peace, respect, community, all these words that, that feel central to what skill and action is about. And still I wrote all over the own symbol. And I don't know, like, I don't, I don't know that if that's okay. Um, and so when this woman gave me feedback, cause she wanted to know if I designed it. And I said, cause I self-published, I said, yes. Um, so it wasn't the publisher who designed this. And I understand that it, that it may have caused harm. Um, and of course that wasn't my intention, but that doesn't matter. That's what I said to her. Um, and I didn't change the cover, right? It's out. 
but I'm sitting with that every time I like look at it, I remember this woman saying, you really, that's not how you want to be working with this, this symbol. Hmm. Um, and you know, other people, dusty people have been like, it's fine. Like I've been asked them, they've just given feedback to me. So I, I think people have different, um, perspectives about this, but I need to be like, Oh wait, this one person, um, named that this caused harm and she has questions about it. And I'm going to, instead of being defensive, I'm going to be undefended and say, yeah, like and my curious. intention around this doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to keep asking myself, like, is this okay? What does it mean that I did it? Why did I do it? Um, in the future, what can I do differently? So I think t- people can do that, um, to try to understand cultural appropriation. Cause we're, we're so each one of us is appropriating all the time because of capitalism, like we can, and, and culture there's, there's no way to escape it. And so I think we need to assume it's happening and understand how it's happening and take feedback um, about it when it's happening, and in particular from the people that we may have appropriated from. Um, and then think about our relationship with, with people. So what is my relationship with dusty people or my relationship with this um, practice and where it's from? Those are some things that I sit with when I think about cultural appropriation because I don't think we're going to fix it. We're like in it now. Right. And it's asking ourselves to be highly conscious all of the time, which is a discipline and a continual practice in itself. Right. Even for those of us who've maybe studied this material for decades, it's still it's still something we have to continually say, what am I, what's behind this? What's behind this? What's behind my action? What's behind my intention? And it's not easy. No, it's a lot of work. It's a lot and of work. And that feels like yoga to me, though, like peeling back the like, okay, what, what's going on here? Okay, what's happening here? And what's under that? Right. That's, that's the practice, you know? Not the asana, but the off the mat practice. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, that leads perfectly to our last question for you. <laughs> um, we wanted to talk to you about Asteya in a, in a broader sense than snagging the yogurt in the office fridge or something like that. For us, we wanted to talk about how it also means being our authentic self and to talk about some of the issues in the yoga community and acknowledging tough subjects like spiritual bypassing and cultural appropriation. So with with all that in mind, um, the subtitle of Living the Sutras is A Guide to Yoga Wisdom Beyond the Mat. And we want to give people really accessible and tangible practices to, to help them do that. So what off the mat practice really helps you stay in touch with your authentic self? And what can we all do to make sure we're not stealing from the collective good? Yeah, so the practice that helps me um, be authentic and live from this place of authenticity is a connection with my ancestors. It's the first thing that came to mind um, when you asked the question. And what I mean is I, um, I, am, I am not in isolation. I am not alone. Um, I have a long um, line of, of people um, and lineage um, behind me upholding me. Hmm. And um, I need to remember them because when I forget them, I'm in the ego. Mm. And when I remember them, I'm in like, I am in the collective, right? I'm in this shared experience. I know that skill in action was written by my ancestors. I just sat down and the words came out. But it's from my grandmother and my great-grandmother. 
um, and my grandfather, right? It's from all of the ancestors that I didn't know. Um, it's from my great grandmother was born into slavery. It's from that experience. Like I need to remember that. And I also, um, feel like what's tied to authenticity is resilience. My ancestors, um, remind me about resilience and strength and responsibility. And I'm sure they are who call me into action. Um, I mean, they made me this way. So they call me into action. Like they're that, that they're the voices I hear. Um, when I feel overwhelmed and don't want to do anything, they're like, do your work. You know, my, my grandma is like, do your work. She says it to me all the time. Um, cause she's around me all the time. She says it. And I'm like, okay, grandma, I've, I'll, I'll step up and do it, you know? And so they feel like what keeps me, um, authentic, right. And, and like just honest and, um, in my truth, my ancestors, and then the, the second part of your question, can you re- remind me of that? Yeah, I, I guess I'd love to hear from you what you think some practices are, yogic or not, um, that we can all do to maybe make sure we're not stealing from the collective good, that we're a- aware. Uh, or that we're using acting. the collective good rather than stealing. Maybe how do we actually, yeah. how, are we use, how do we use it better? Mm. I think we remember we're part of the collective. Um, and it's what I spoke about earlier, like this divide and conquer will make us feel isolated and it will make us isolate ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I think remembering we are part of a group, which means that our actions affect every being, as I mentioned earlier, and that we need to be conscious of that. I also need to be conscious of what I'm um, consuming, what I'm taking, what I feel like I need, my material attachments, because you know, the moment I buy something off Amazon, which Amazon Prime is like, <laughs> feels dangerous to me. But the moment I do that, I feel like it's so easy. It's like convenient. And I do it, right? Like I'm not innocent, right? I do it all the time because it's like easy. It'll show up on my doorstep. I don't, I don't always think about where it's from and who made it um, and what it's made of and how it came to be and what harm might be um, happening in response to me clicking a button. And, and then the postal person bringing this thing to my door, right? I'm not conscious of that all the time. And I feel like I need to be because it does feel like I'm, I'm stealing in the sense of like, I'm not paying attention to where things are from. Um, and so that's, that's one practice. Um, and then not taking more than I need. The culture says I need more. Dominant culture does. Mm-hmm. Like more is better. And I really want to challenge that. Um, and not buy into needing more to be better or to feel better. Um, and the practice helps me of yoga helps me with this. Like, I don't, I don't need all of the things, all of these possessions to make me be me or make me feel whole, but the culture will, will tell me that. Like if I drive a nice car and I live in a big house and I have all of these things around me, like somehow that equates to wholeness and that's false. And so I feel like we can remember that our possessions and the desire for possessions, um, those things do not make us who we are. Um, They're not the truth, right, about who we are. They're not the true essence of who we are. So that's another action I feel like people can be aware of. And then social location, which I mentioned earlier, is the other action related to class. uh, and other identities, but I'm thinking about um, how culture's been constructed for some people to have, to be resourced, and other people not to be resourced. Um, and where do I fit in that, and what does that mean? 
and how do I leverage my resources um, to um, support um, others who may have less than I have? Um, how can I practice generosity instead of buying into greed, like greediness, like I need all these things? So those are some practices I think about. Tangible, tangible. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has been absolutely wonderful. We would love to have you on again. I feel like we only scratched the surface of things we, we were hoping to talk about. So yeah, thank you. I think you're, thank a, you. I think you're a warrior, Michelle, and I can't wait to see what happens next with you. This is exciting. Thank you so much for your work and thank you for inviting me to the show and I'd love to come back. Um, and thank you for your thoughtful questions and the depth right of the interview. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you for listening to Living It. For those of you who want to find out about Michelle and where she's teaching, visit michellecjohnson.com. That's two L's in Michelle. You can find links to this as well as more information about the resources we discussed in this episode in the show notes or at our website, livingitpodcast.com. For those of you interested in deepening your practice while also enjoying the sun and sea, Amy is leading her annual retreat in Mexico, December 1st through the 8th. Visit tantramadison.com for more info. For those of you who can't escape to the beach, I'm leading an online course on the sutras this fall. Send me an email at kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, at livingitpodcast.com to learn more. And remember, listeners get 30% off Restore and Rebalance, Yoga for Deep Relaxation by Judith Hansen Lassiter and Living the Sutras at Shambhala with the code SDAYA30 and 20% off at Alchemy Forever with the code SUTRA20. Thank you so much for tuning in. We are so excited to keep doing this. Please share the podcast with your friends. Message us on Instagram at Kelly Gennardo and at Amy Pierce Hayden. Email us through our website, livingitpodcast.com. Subscribe in iTunes. Write a review. We really love doing this, so please help us continue to keep the podcast going. Thanks for listening.